This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you this week for the Jewish News Hour. This week I'll start off reading from the Jewish Insider. First, General Mills says departing Israel was a, boy, uh, was a business decision, not a boycott. We continue to sell our products in Israel and look forward to continuing to serve Israeli consumers with our other brands, the food manufacturer said, by Mark Rod. Days after General Mills announced it had sold its stake in a joint operation in Israel that operated a plant in East Jerusalem, the company emphasized that its decision was unconnected to a boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement advocacy campaign that has targeted its operations for several years. We have made clear the global business strategy that drove this decision. Any claims by others taking credit for this decision are false. A new statement obtained by Jewish Insider reads, We continue to sell our products in Israel and look forward to continuing to serve Israeli consumers with our other brands. The food manufacturing giant has been the subject of a long-running activist campaign urging the company to divest from a factory manufacturing Pillsbury products in the Atarot Industrial Zone in the West Bank. BDS activists claimed victory following the company's Tuesday announcement it was selling off its stake in its Israeli enterprise to its business partner, Bodan Holdings. The company previously sold off its European dough business in November 2021 and characterized both moves as part of a new business strategy to reshape the company's portfolio for sustainable, profitable growth by increasing its focuses on advantaged global platforms. Noam Perry, a member of the American Friends Service Committee's economic activist team, a Quaker advocacy group that led the two-year boycott, said in a statement Wednesday that General Mills' divestment shows that public pressure, even on the largest of corporations, AFSC did not respond to a request for comment. And next we'll go over to the Times of Israel. Bennett to IAEA chief, Israel reserves right to act against Iran's nuclear program by Times of Israel staff and agencies. Prime Minister Naftali Bennett met Friday with the visiting head of the UN's atomic watchdog for talks focused on Iran's nuclear program. A statement from Bennett's office said the premier warned International Atomic Energy Agency chief Rafael Grossi that Iran was pushing ahead on developing a nuclear weapon while misleading the world with false information and lies to conceal its work. Bennett stressed the urgent need to confront Iran using all means to prevent it from acquiring nuclear arms, according to the Prime Minister's office. He also called for the IAEA to send Tehran a clear and unequivocal, uh, unequivocal message at an upcoming Board of Governors meeting dealing with undeclared Iranian nuclear sites. Bennett made it clear that while Israel prefers diplomacy in order to deny Iran the possibility of developing nuclear programs, it reserves the right to self-defense and to take action against Iran in order to block its nuclear program should the international community not succeed in the relevant time frame, the statement said. Grossi, who was returning to Vienna after the meeting, said he and Bennett had important exchanges on topical issues. I stress the importance of IAEA safeguards and the treaty 
on the non-proliferation of nuclear weapons for global peace and security, Grossi tweeted. Israel, widely believed to be the only, nucle- uh, the only nuclear-armed state in the Middle East, is not a member of the NPT. Grossi's trip came as Israel had expressed growing concerns about Iran's atomic activities and any potential return to the 2015 nuclear agreement between Tehran and world powers. Negotiations to restore the accord remained deadlocked after stalling in March, with a main sticking point being Iran's demand, rejected by Washington, that the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the ideological arm of the Iranian military, be removed from a U.S. terrorism blacklist. Earlier this week, the Israeli Prime Minister accused Iran of stealing classified documents from the IAEA and using them to deceive international inspectors nearly two decades ago. He released what he said were some of the documents in question. Iran has dismissed the allegations as lies. Israel was a staunch opponent of the 2015 nuclear deal and welcomed the Trump administration's unilateral withdrawal from the agreement, which caused it to collapse. However, a number of current and former security officials have begun saying that the withdrawal was a mistake, as it had led to Iran accelerating its nuclear enrichment efforts. The Biden administration has been trying to renew the accord, which lifted sanctions on Iran in return for limits to and oversight of its nuclear program. Iran has always said its nuclear activities are for purely peaceful purposes, but has stepped up uranium enrichment after the collapse of the nuclear accord to near-weapons-grade levels. U.S. intelligence agencies, Western nations, and the IAEA have said Iran ran an organized nuclear weapons program until 2003. Neither the U.S. nor Israel has ruled out the use of military force to prevent Iran from developing a nuclear weapon. Earlier this week, the IAEA published a report estimating that Iran's stockpile of enriched uranium had grown to more than 18 times the limit agreed on in the troubled 2015 pact known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. The UN's nuclear watchdog also said it still had questions that were not clarified regarding undeclared nuclear material previously found at three sites, Maravan, Varamin, and Turkuzabad, a district of Tehran previously identified by Israel as an alleged site of secret atomic activity. Both American and Israeli officials have assessed that Iran now needs only a few weeks to amass enough fissile material for a bomb should it choose to make one, though it would need additional time to assemble the device's other component. Biden said due in Israel, June 23rd, will meet Prime Minister Abbas tour East Jerusalem Hospital by Times of Israel staff. U.S. President Joe Biden will arrive in Israel on June 23rd As part of a planned trip to the Middle East, Hebrew media outlets reported Friday. The White House has yet to release the dates for Biden's trip, which was announced after a phone call with Prime Minister Naftali Bennett in April. According to the Ynet News site, Biden will tour an Iron Dome anti-missile battery after touching down at Ben-Gurion Airport before heading to Jerusalem. In the capital, he is expected to visit the Yad Vashem Holocaust Memorial and hold meetings with Prime Minister Naftali Bennett and, Prime, and, and President Isaac Herzog. The next day, he is reportedly going to visit a hospital in East Jerusalem before heading to the West Bank city of Bethlehem to meet Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas. He will then continue on his trip, which will include a stop in Saudi Arabia. 
The planned visit will come as the Israeli government teeters after losing its parliamentary majority, though the White House reportedly informed the Prime Minister's office that the trip was still on despite the political turmoil. Preparations for the trip are already underway, including security coordination between Israeli and U.S. officials. On Tuesday, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said a U.S. delegation would be dispatched to meet with Palestinian officials to discuss Biden's trip. Biden last visited Israel as vice president in 2016. Bennett met with Biden at the White House in August. And next, an opinion piece in the Times of Israel by Yosef Blau. What happened to Yom Yerushalayim? That refers to Jerusalem Day in Israel. For those of us who were born before 1967, the Six-Day War was transformative. The fear of the destruction of Israel before the war was replaced by elation. From a religious perspective, the return of the old city of Jerusalem to Jewish control was the high point. Since 1948, it had been impossible to pray at the Kotel, the Western Wall, or even to enter the old city. The then New Jerusalem that was part of Israel was less than 100 years old. It did not include any of the historic religious sites. Initially, many of the non-Zionist Orthodox community who were uncomfortable celebrating Yom Ha'atzma'ot, Israel's Independence Day, joined in celebrating Yom Yerushalayim, Jerusalem Day. In the broader world, there was a growth in Jewish pride. In Soviet Russia, it was the catalyst for the refuseniks. A Jewish community of three million thought to have disappeared re-emerged. In the Western world, the Jewish day school movement expanded. Ethiopian Jewry began to start returning to Israel after being separate from the rest of the Jewish people for well over 2,000 years. Fifty-five years later, Yom Yerushalayim barely exists outside of Israel. And in Israel, it has become the holiday of the religious Zionists, in many respects a day of nationalist politics, with the focus of the day on the March of the Flags. This year in Lod, a mixed Jewish-Arab city, there was a March of Flags on Jerusalem Day. To properly probe the change requires an analysis of the varied reactions to the implications of the Six-Day War. For much of the religious Zionist world, it was part of a messianic process that is understood by its adherents to be irreversible. In sharp contrast, some prominent religious thinkers rejected any messianic implications of the Israeli victory and considered them misguided and dangerous. In this camp, Yeshayahu Leibovitz was the most vocal opponent. Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik also expressed his concern. And indeed, what began as a theological difference of approach came to be translated into political disputes about territory, about peace agreements with Arab countries and the Palestinians. For non-Zionist Orthodox rabbis, the excitement about having access to religious sites that the Six-Day War granted became balanced by that camp's ongoing opposition to the secular state. Few went to the extreme of the Satmar Rebbe who saw the victory as coming from Satan, but many were troubled by the fact that access to the holy sites was achieved via the military victory of the army of a secular state. For many religious Zionists, beginning with Gush Imunim, 
settling the conquered territory and opposing relinquishing any territory within Israel's biblical boundaries became the primary political objective. Minimally, Israel maintaining full control of a united Jerusalem was a given, and eventually in some religious Zionist circles the decision by Moshe Dayan in 1967 to allow the Jordanian authorities to retain control of the Temple Mount, which was initially accepted as a pragmatic necessity, became a disastrous mistake. Indeed, the increased role of nationalism among religious Zionists was evident in the change of name of the sector's political party when it became the National Religious Party. Outside of the religious Zionist community, the religious significance of a united Jerusalem became lost in the controversies about keeping territory, a two-state solution, and peace. For a generation born after 1967, there is little recognition of the preceding years and no real share in the sense of a vulnerable Israel. In contrast to Yom Ha'atzma'ot, where the distinction between not having a state and having one is clear, implications of increased boundaries still subject, subject to negotiations are not apparent. Over 30 years ago, the Jerusalem Day march through the old city with Israeli flags waving became the way to demonstrate Israeli control over the entire city of Jerusalem. The march was led by youths and was difficult to control. Radical national groups used the march to show control of Arabs and racist taunts were shouted. Naturally, this led to confrontations. This year, the level of politicization has split the religious Zionist community. The first religious Zionist prime minister in history was not invited to the prayers at Yeshivat Merkaz Harav because there are those who object to his policies. In particular, the inclusion of an Arab party in the coalition is a red line, though it is difficult to find any difference between this government and its predecessor in dealing with the Palestinian Authority or in its attitude to settlements. The March of the Flags has become a political statement of control over the Arabs in the Muslim quarter, with no attempt to limit the anti-Arab comments made by sub-marchers. As, uh, as mentioned, a similar march, not related to Jerusalem, took place in Lod, a mixed Jewish-Arab city. When a successful Yom Yerushalayim is one that saw no rockets launched from Gaza at Israel, then the day has become an expression of political power. Its religious nature has been lost. At this point, curtailing the march of the flags or changing its path through the Damascus Gate and the Muslim Quarter may be interpreted by some as political weakness, but that very concern reflects that the entire focus of the day is on demonstrating political strength and control. The shift to the right in the religious Zionist community has accelerated with the inclusion of a Kahana supporter in the Knesset. Notably, he belongs to a group calling itself the Religious Zionist Party, and he is a major figure in the March of the Flags. It is unclear how prevalent the anti-Arab sentiment is in this segment of Israeli society, but it seems to be growing. Symbolically, songs about the city of Jerusalem have been replaced by a song glorifying revenge. The day that initially was for religious Jews a meaningful time of rejoicing and a celebration of Jewish identity has been appropriated, as it were, 
for a statement promoting a new amalgam of nationalism and religion by a minority segment of the religious population. And in that, the essence of Yom Yerushalayim has been lost. Rabbi Yosef Blau is the senior Meshkiach Rohani spiritual advisor at Yeshiva University and a partial resident in Jerusalem. Next with the Times of Israel, fighting rabbinic man Jewish activists pushed Temple Mount prayer closer to mainstream. By Judy Ari, uh, Judah Ari Gross. Among the most successful political movements in Israel in recent decades has been one relating to the Temple Mount, turning what was once an exceedingly fringe view held solely by members of the national religious camp into something that even a significant number of secular Jewish Israelis can agree with, that Jews should be allowed not only to visit but to pray on the Temple Mount. That shift, truly a dramatic one, historically speaking, was on display Sunday, last Sunday, as a record number of Jews visited the site to celebrate Jerusalem Day, which marks Israel's capture of East Jerusalem in the 1967 Six-Day War, the first time that the Temple Mount was in Jewish hands, at least nominally, in some 2,000 years. More than 2,600 Jews visited the Temple Mount, setting a record for the highest number of Jewish visitors to the site in a single day likely since the Second Temple was destroyed in 70 CE. This represents an astronomical rise in just a few years. There were only 5,000 visits to the Temple Mount by Jews in all of 2012, some of those being repeat visits by the same people, meaning the number of total visitors was likely significantly lower than that. In the uh, entire year 2000, 1,000 Jews visited the Temple Mount, fewer than half as many as did last Sunday. For decades, authorities issued strict prohibitions against visiting the Temple Mount, widely considered to be the holiest site for Jews, on the grounds that people could accidentally defile the site. And until relatively recently, these bans were accepted by the overwhelming majority of Israel's Jewish public. In recent years, however, a relatively small but intensely dedicated faction from Israel's so-called national religious camp, Orthodox Jews generally associated with right-wing hawkish politics and crocheted yarmulkes, has chipped away at the consensus view of halakha, or Jewish law, issuing rulings that allow or even require visits to the Temple Mount to some parts of it anyway, and under certain conditions. With those dueling rulings in place, more and more religious Jews have felt comfortable ascending the Temple Mount, often immersing themselves in a purifying mikvah beforehand, which has enabled the activists to slowly alter what is considered acceptable behavior for Jews on the Esplanade. In addition to this one-two punch of reinterpreting halakha and establishing facts on the ground, the Jew uh, Jewish Temple Mount activists have also fought a stunningly successful public relations battle, shifting the discourse around Jewish visits to the site from an outlying religious issue to a cause that even secular and liberal Israelis can agree with, freedom of worship and national sovereignty. Even as Foreign Minister Yair Lapid sought to calm tensions around the Temple Mount last month, by pledging Israel's commitment to the status quo, saying Muslims pray on the Temple Mount, 
non-Muslims only visit. There is no change, there will be no change. He voiced some unease about that framework which he deemed discriminatory. By the way, he told international reporters, I don't feel comfortable with the idea that Jews do not have freedom of religion in the state of Israel and that Jews are banned from praying at the site. The result of these efforts by national religious activists in recent years has been a meteoric rise in visits by Jews to the Temple Mount, a profound change in the status quo on the site, and some violations of it, and far greater support for both of these developments among mainstream Israelis. Indeed, a recent survey of Jewish Israelis by the Israeli Democracy Institute found that exactly half support allowing Jews to pray on the Temple Mount, with three-quarters of these saying that they support it because it would send a message about Israel's control over the site, while only a quarter said that it should be allowed because of religious reasons. Forty percent of those polled opposed Jewish prayer on the Temple Mount, with 57.5% of them saying that they were against it because it might invoke a severe negative reaction from the Muslim world, while the rest said they opposed it because they believed it was forbidden under Jewish law. Almost immediately upon wrestling, uh, resting control of the Temple Mount away from Jordan, which had occupied it following the 1948 War of Independence, Israeli government officials and rabbinic leaders both recognized the significance and possible dangers associated with the Flashpoint site, each for their own reasons. For the Israeli government, the issue is principally diplomatic and security-related in nature. Then-Defense Minister Moshe Dayan believed that exerting full sovereignty and practice over the Temple Mount would prompt a fierce backlash from the Muslim world, more even than the considerable violent opposition Israel had already faced in its 19 years of existence. That would make it more difficult for Israel to maintain its control over the rest of Jerusalem and the West Bank, which Diane saw as strategically far more significant. He therefore called for the management, management of the site to be re-entrusted to the Muslim authorities even encouraging Muslim prayer to restart within weeks of its capture while Israeli forces would be responsible for external security. Leaving administration of the Temple Mount, Haram al-Sharif in Muslim hands softened international resistance to the steps Israel took, aided in normalizing Israeli control over the Temple Mount, Haram al-Sharif, and facilitated Israeli jurisdiction over Jerusalem, Yitzhak Reiter, a professor of Middle East studies at Ashkelon Academic College and longtime researcher into the Temple Mount, wrote in a 2017 paper on the topic. These concerns were soon proven legitimate as Palestinians rioted after the then chief rabbi of the Israel Defense Forces, Shlomo Gorin held prayer services on the Temple Mount two months after its capture on the Jewish, fa Jewish fast day of Tisha B'Av, which commemorates the destructions of the temples. This violence led the Israeli government to appoint a ministerial committee to consider the matter and formalize its policies regarding the Temple Mount. The committee ordered Gorin to halt his services on the Esplanade and to stop taking measurements of the site for the purposes of preparing the construction of a third temple. The 
committee also dictated when Jewish visitors enter through the gates of the Temple Mount for the sake of prayer, they shall be redirected by defense forces to the Western Wall. This decision issued a few months after the war largely established what is now known as the status quo on the Temple Mount. Israel controlled the security arrangements and oversaw bureaucratic issues, while the Muslim Waqf controlled day-to-day -day operations on the site. Muslims prayed on the site. Non-Muslims could visit but not pray. The chief rabbinate and leading rabbinic figures acted far, far faster, issuing an edict against Jewish visits to the Temple Mount and maintaining that those who did risk desecrating the holy site. This was just two days after it was captured, long before the government decision and even before the war had ended. That ruling was based on concerns about the precise location of certain parts of the original temples, some of which a person could only enter after they had been ritually purified and one in particular, the Holy of Holies, that no one but the high priest could, could enter, and even then only on Yom Kippur. It is not currently possible to perform the purification rites needed to visit these sites, as the primary ingredient, a red heifer with no blemishes that has never been pregnant, milked, or yoked, has never been found in modern times. There have been constant efforts to locate one over the years and now to breed one using genetic modification, but so far to no avail. It is also difficult to, abs uh, to ascertain with absolute certainty the location of these parts of the Temple Mount. The locations were last recorded with any degree of accuracy in the Mishnah, codified at about the year 200, but the Esplanade itself has been expanded since then, rendering those measurements at best incomplete. As a result of this uncertainty, and because all Jews today are effectively considered to be incurably impure, they are therefore forbidden by this ruling from visiting the Esplanade lest they accidentally walk through and desecrate those areas. The ruling remains in effect today, and it is why many religious Jews who might politically support the concept of Israel exerting full sovereignty over the Temple Mount do not personally visit the site such as the case of far-right Knesset member Batzalel Smotrich, for instance. The rabbinate's decree was, the overwhelming, was overwhelming, uh, overwhelmingly accepted by Israel's Jewish population from 1967 through the 1990s, with the exception of what was at the time a fringe minority in the national religious community. That fringe minority included a group of religious extremists, the so-called Jewish underground, who in the early 1980s plotted to blow up the Dome of the Rock. The attack was foiled at the last minute by Israeli security forces. Toward the end of this period, the status quo began breaking down. Israel opened the Western Wall Tunnels, an underground passage that runs along the base of the Esplanade, which the Waqf interpreted as a violation of the arrangement. The Waqf, in turn, halted all cooperation with the Israeli government, building and renovating structures on the site, without the required authorization, particularly from the antiquities authorities. Looking to calm tensions, Israel deliberately turned a blind eye to these oversteps. Frustrated by these events and fearing that Israel could relinquish control over the Temple Mount as part of the peace deals with the Palestinians that were being negotiated, ultimately to no avail, 
During this time, Jewish national religious groups sought to reinforce the Jewish-Israeli public's connection to the location. The most significant of these activist groups was the Temple Institute, an organization that not only advocates for Jewish pilgrimages to the Temple Mount, but also actively prepares for the construction of a new temple on the Esplanade, crafting the equipment and clothing that would be needed to perform temple service according to strict biblical standards. Throughout the 1990s, activists worked to overturn or at least challenge the rabbinate's ruling against visiting the site. They did not reject the opinion that the Temple Mount was holy and that certain parts had to be avoided, but believed there were ways to visit the Esplanade without desecrating the site. This included immersing in a ritual bath prior to ascending and staying on pathways that are believed not to pass through those sacred areas, generally by staying as close to the edge of the mount as possible. Though efforts to reverse the prohibition on ascending the Esplanade have so far failed, indeed a sign reminding visitors of the prescription is still displayed outside the Maghrabi Gate, through which non-Muslims enter the site. Over the past three decades, these groups have moved the needle on public perception of the Temple Mount. The first crack in the consensus on the ban came in 1996 when the Rabbinical Council of the West Bank published a ruling that deemed it permissible to go up to the Temple Mount and encouraged rabbis who agreed with this view to do so with their congregants. In 2000, one of the co-founders of the Temple Institute, Rabbi Yisrael Ariel, released his own ruling that went further, arguing that visiting the Temple Mount was necessary to fulfill the biblical commandment of conquering the land of Israel, which meant that ascending the mount was not only permissible but required under Jewish law. Some rabbis have also argued that certain animal sacrifices, specifically the sacrifice of a lamb for the Passover holiday, are still required today, regardless of the non-existence of a temple, and each year small groups of religious Jews attempt to perform such rituals, though they are always stopped by police. Though this interpretation remains highly uncommon among ultra-Orthodox or Haredi Jews, it has become increasingly adopted by national religious rabbis, including some prominent ones like Rabbi Dov Lior and Rabbi Chaim Druckmann. That is not to say that this is the consensus view among national religious rabbis. In 2020, 135 national religious rabbis published a decree upholding the ban on visiting the Temple Mount due to purity issues. According to the Israel Democracy Institute survey, even among national religious Jews who support Jewish prayer on the Temple Mount, this interpretation of Jewish law is relatively uncommon. The poll found that while 72% of people who identify as national religious support Jewish prayer on the Mount, Less than a third say they held this belief because it is a religious commandment. Instead, more than 70% said it was because of proof of Israel's sovereignty. The issue of visiting the Temple Mount has also been raised among non-Orthodox Jews. In 2007, David Golinkin, a prominent conservative rabbi, ruled that it was not only permitted to visit the Temple Mount, the areas that do not require full ritual purity at least, but that it is worthwhile in order to maintain Judaism's claim to the site. 
It is permissible to enter part of the Temple Mount, and I believe we should make a concerted effort to do so in order to emphasize that the Temple Mount is our holiest site and cannot be plundered, Golinkin wrote in response to a question on the topic. A number of organizations have been formed by national religious activists over the years to encourage Jewish visits to the Temple Mount. One of the largest groups is the Temple Institute, which was established in 1987. In addition to its preparations for the construction of a third temple, including drawing up architectural blueprints, the organization does a considerable amount of outreach, particularly to schools and educational programs. It also operates its own religious seminary, which focuses on religious issues related to the temple. For these efforts, the Institute receives significant grants from the government, in addition to its private fundraising. Thousands of Israeli students, religious and secular, have visited the Institute, whose tours include a video of the Third Temple replacing the Dome of the Rock on the Temple Mount and asking visitors, what are each of you doing to achieve the realization of this vision? The Institute's founder, Rabbi Ariel, is a disciple of Meir Kahane, an American-born extremist whose Kach party was banned from the Knesset for racism. Ariel is a regular speaker at memorial ceremonies for Kahane, who was assassinated in New York in 1990 and often explicitly calls for the Dome of the Rock to be demolished to make room for a Jewish temple. More recently established organization, the Temple Mount Heritage Foundation similarly advocates for increased Jewish presence on the compound through uh, political lobbying and media campaigns, as well as leading tours of the mount for schools, pre-army preparatory programs, and tour groups. On its website, the group explains, to our great sorrow and disgrace, the official policy of the State of Israel at present is to officially ban Jewish prayer, but adds that the organization is fighting to change that. Moreover, the foundation assures those considering violating this prohibition that it will end at most with a police reprimand. The group adds it is unfortunate, but the more Jews there, the faster it will change. And indeed, the number of Jews recent, uh, visiting in recent years has grown astronomically, and many of the limits on prayer have in turn fallen away. Speaking during an event held at the Knesset in 2009, Rabbi Yehuda Kreutzer, a leader in the Temple Mount movement, described this slow march toward limited Jewish prayer on the Esplanade. The barrier was broken accidentally on a hot summer day. One of Rabbi Kreutzer's followers said a blessing over water before he drank and caused a tremendous commotion on the Mount. The guardians of the Waqf started to scream that he was praying over the water. The police surrounded us quickly and started to remove us from the Mount. Is it forbidden to drink water on the mount? We were surprised. It's forbidden, the officer declared. At that moment, a group of tourists stopped to take a break to drink right near us. And this is how we took the advantage. The marker newspaper quoted Kreutzer as telling the Knesset. Since that time, we always go up and make sure to recite a blessing over food and drink. The prayer for rain has been said and Kaddish has been recited on the mount. Here, slowly, little by little, with stubborn persistence, prohibitions are broken, and the mount is conquered, Kreutzer said. Indeed, today, silent prayer is effectively, if unofficially, permitted on the Temple Mount. 
Group prayers, which would constitute a clear violation of the status quo, have also been documented on the site and have reportedly occurred with the awareness of the walk, but they are generally less tolerated. There have also been a number of clandestine weddings held on the Temple Mount over the past decade. The number of Jewish visitors to the Temple Mount began to rise once the religious permissions were put in place and after increased outreach to the national religious community on the subject. In the early 1990s, there were only a few dozen religious Jews who entered the Temple Mount and encouraged others to do likewise. By the end of that decade, that number had risen to 1,000 people, according to Ryder. Since then, numerous court cases have bolstered the rights of Jews to visit the Temple Mount and diminished the ability of police to prevent them from praying there. These efforts have been strengthened by the election of a number of politicians who support Jewish rights to the Temple Mount, most notably former member of Knesset Yehuda Glick, who was and remains one of the country's most prominent and controversial Temple Mount activists. As a result of all these factors over the past 20 years, the numbers have ballooned into the tens of thousands, with nearly 35,000 Jews visiting the Temple Mount in 2021, despite coronavirus restrictions being in place for part of that year. This year is on track to push those numbers still higher. And next, an op-ed from the Times of Israel by David Horowitz, founding editor of Times of Israel. Visiting Israel, Iranian anti-regime activists see another 2009 moment, seek support. In June 2009, millions of Iranians joined protests nationwide in the wake of the re-election of Mahmoud Ahmadinejad as president in a vote widely recognized as rigged. The regime resorted to heavy violence to put down the demonstrations, attacking and arresting protesters and killing dozens of them, most resonantly Neda Aga Sultan philosophy student whose shooting by a gunman from the besieged paramilitary group was captured on film and broadcast worldwide. While the scale of the protests and the brutality of the regime in suppressing them made headlines around the world and created the brief sense that the Ayatollah's hold on power might be slipping, the international community provided little encouragement to the outraged Iranian public. Barack Obama hailed the amazing ferment, but despite the Islamic Republic's record of domestic repression, international terrorism, and a rogue nuclear program, the U.S. president made plain that his administration was not about to help Iranians achieve regime change. It's not productive, given the history of U.S.-Iranian relations to be seen as meddling, he declared. Added the White House press secretary, this is a debate inside of Iran for Iranians. The moment passed, the regime shrugged off even this major eruption of public dissent. Thirteen years later, a delegation of Iranian-born activists known as the Shoshana Group, Muslims and Jews, many of them living in the U.S., visited Israel this week. Prominent among them was the veteran anti-regime journalist Nazanin Ansari, who runs the Kehan London online Persian-language media outlet, which, needless to say, is banned in Iran. In a series of meetings, notably with officials at the Foreign Ministry in Jerusalem, the delegation argued that, to some extent, it's 2009 all over again in Iran. Then, vast nationwide public dissent was galvanized by a manifestly fraudulent election. 
Today, Ansari and her colleagues told me, ordinary Iranians from all walks of life are agitating in numbers that may not compare to 13 years ago, but reflect immense dissatisfaction and despair with the regime, its misplaced priorities, and the consequent economic malaise. Prices are being repeatedly hiked for food and other necessities, and unemployment is rising, and child labor is on the rise, said Ansari and two of her colleagues, Zohra Mizrahi, the president of the Persian-American Civic Action Network, and Dr. Amir Hamidi, a former attaché at the U.S. Embassy in the United Arab Emirates. In recent months, everyone from teachers to bus drivers to prison wardens to firefighters has been on strike over non-payment of wages. In response to the escalating public unrest, the regime has in recent weeks returned to a familiar tactic of disrupting Internet access to the outside world, AP reported on Tuesday, and is currently trying to ensure that days of protests sparked by the collapse of a 10-story building under construction in the southwestern city of Abadan, in which at least 33 people were killed, go as unreported as possible. On Sunday night, last Sunday night in Abadan, a cleric loyal to Iran's supreme leader Ali Khamenei was shouted down when he tried to address mourners near the site. In AP's telling, surrounded by bodyguards, the Ayatollah in his 60s tried to continue but couldn't. What's happening? The cleric stage whispered to a bodyguard who then leaned in to tell him something. The cleric then tried to address the crowd again. My dears, please keep calm as a sign of respect to Abadan, its martyrs, and the dear victims. The whole Iranian nation is mourning tonight. The crowd responded by shouting, shameless. Riot police have been using tear gas and firing into the air to try to disperse what AP has described as large protests. Ansari and her colleagues said their information is that, as in 2009, the security forces are also firing directly into the crowds. The Shoshana delegation's contention is that the scale of Iranian public opposition to the regime is again being underestimated by the international community, with the regime managing to prevent a clear picture of the protests reaching the West. The Iranian people want regime change, Ansari said firmly, and they don't need outside military help. They can do it on their own, but the lack of outside support could cause them to lose hope, added Mizrahi. The visiting delegation also took pains to distinguish and urge the international community to distinguish between Iranians and the regime. Iranians, unlike the regime, don't hate the West and don't hate Israel, they said. When I asked how it could be that, in their telling, the Iranian public was immune to decades of anti-Israel incitement, they offered three explanations. First, older Iranians remember the pre-Ayatollah era when Iran and Israel were allied. Second, the Iranian public largely disbelieves what the regime tells them. And third, Iranians recognize Israel's practical, technical achievements, capabilities they know could help Iran. Among Iran's biggest challenges is water scarcity, Ansari noted. And Iranians know Israel is incredible on tackling water scarcity via desalination, drip irrigation, and so on. In this context, regime legislation that criminalizes any use of Israeli technology is one more source of public anger. The demonstrators are not anti-U.S. or anti-Israel or pro-nuclear, said Ansari, whose Kayan London website is documenting the protests. 
Rather, ordinary Iranians, uh, Iranians resent the vast channeling of funds to Hezbollah and to Gaza terror groups to weapons development and to the nuclear program. Not Gaza, not Lebanon, my life is for Iran, is a popular sentiment. She said, and another, the enemy is here, they lie when they say it is in America. The Shoshana group delegates were appreciative that the foreign ministry agreed to meet with them and hoped their message struck home. Hamidi said they looked to the day when the people of Iran and of Israel are at peace in what had been touted as the Cyrus Accords, a kind of Jewish-Persian version of the uh, Abraham Accords, evoking Cyrus the Great's liberation of the Israelites from Babylonian captivity in 538 BCE. International community failed the Iranian public in 2009, and it failed them again in 2015 in freeing up colossal sums of money to the regime when the JCPOA nuclear deal was signed, most of which, said Hamidi, was allocated for the darkest of purposes. Now Iranians are back out on the streets, said the visiting ex-Iranians. Their interests, Israel's interests, and the free world's interests, they stressed, require that we support them. And now we'll go over to JTA again. On the kibbutz, Shavuot, the holiday of Shavuot, is a time for remembering the movement's glory days by Hillel Cutler. Kibbutz Ginegar, Israel. As the song Golden Youth by kibbutz folk band Gebatron played in an outdoor alcove beneath this farm village's community center Wednesday afternoon, Choreographer Tamar Danin, 15, gently instructed her charges, a dozen girls ages 9 to 13, on the stretches and tambourine tapping they will be doing at a performance Saturday evening to open the Shavuot holiday. The dance will be one of eight presented at ver- uh, by various age groups, including parents with their babies, at a cultural event expected to draw 500 people. The audience will sit outdoors and gaze south across the expanse of Jezreel Valley, dubbed the breadbasket of Israel, for its many kibbutz and moshav communities, including some of the country's oldest. Ginagar, which relocated to this fertile region 100 years ago, produces grapefruits, mandarin oranges, olives, cotton, corn, wheat, barley, sorghum, tomatoes, watermelons, and avocados. Shavuot, a biblical festival celebrating the first fruits and grains of the spring harvest, is the most widely celebrated holiday at Israel's communal farms, the vast majority of them not religiously oriented. Shavuot is observed uh, this Sunday and Monday. Communal Shavuot celebrations on a kibbutz generally feature dance performances and parades of residents representing each of the community's departments. Children and adults carry wicker baskets recreating the biblical harvest offerings. On Shavuot, the kibbutz identity, especially Jewish identity, is strengthened, said Ayala Glass, the Society and Community Department Director at the kibbutz movement and a resident of kibbutz Palmahim along the Mediterranean Sea. The holiday resonance uh, resonates deeply despite the economic and social crises that rocks the uh, that rocked the kibbutz movement in the 1980s and 90s and prompted radical shifts as privatiza- as, as uh, privatization. A 
movement based on collective principles began allowing people to keep their outside income. Closed communal dining rooms, child rearing, and foreign volunteer programs, and welcomed outsiders to build homes on the grounds without becoming members. Approximately 190,000 people, just 63,000 of them kibbutz members, now reside in the 248 agricultural villages, said Roy Shabtai, a spokesman for the kibbutz movement, which represents 230 of the communities. Kibbutz residents say the Shavuot celebrations endure by evoking simpler times and appealing to people seeking communal ties in an era of increased individualism. Elsewhere in Israel, observant families connect with the holiday celebration of the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai by learning religious texts throughout the night. Traditional and even secular families gather for dairy meals featuring lasagna, cheese blintzes, and cheesecake in a nod to ancient Israelites abstaining from meat after receiving the Torah. Danine, the choreographer, said her friends visit here every Shavuot out of a desire to witness a spectacle absent from their cities and towns. They think it's only a holiday of dairy and cheese, she said. They're looking for something different to do. While Ginnagar's hour-long event remains fairly consistent from year to year, uh, year to year, new elements keep it fresh. This Shavuot will feature a concert stage and a plaza lined with kiosks selling homemade foods, fresh juice, and snacks. The street fair setup aims to encourage socializing among veteran residents, non-member residents, and visitors from the region and beyond. Light aircraft normally used for fumigating fields will be used for sky riding and aerial stunts. Several of the additions were introduced by Shimrit Gershon, Ginnagar's cultural coordinator. Gershon moved here with her husband and children 13 years ago and built a home in a new neighborhood dubbed The Expanse, a nickname also employed at other kibbutzim, where non-members live. Their homes tend to stand out from the kibbutz's smaller, older buildings. While some outsiders, including her neighbors, enjoy the pastoral setting but don't partake in the communal, some say insular life of the kibbutz, Gershon says she preferred investing in the community. I wanted to fit in to belong. It's good to feel connected to something, and it's fun to meet people of different ages, types, and characters, she said. Dancers at the afternoon rehearsal included Gershon's 12-year-old daughter, Or. Of the Shavuot event, in which she also participated last year, Or Gershon said, I like the atmosphere, the people, the field setting, and the white costume with pink sash she'll be wearing. Non-members like Gershon offer hope for preserving kibbutzes as cohesive communities, if not socialist enclaves. So too do the young people raised on them who moved to urban areas following their army service, but increasingly are drawn back to the nurturing surroundings to raise their families. Both groups will be vital to replenish an aging population and to inject new energy. Even newer terminology indicates a more welcoming attitude, such as the members with economic autonomy category for residents of the expanse. Maria Sela, 49, who immigrated from Sweden in 1993 and became a full-fledged member through her husband, Ginnigar native Oded, estimated that fewer than 150 of the kibbutz's 800 residents are members. 80% of the 150, she said, are over age 70. The expanse made a huge difference, said Selah of the neighborhood's 300 residents. 
other kibbutz residents include college students and females performing community service in lieu of military conscription. Some of the veteran kibbutzniks remained plenty vibrant. Dan Ike had just finished an adults-only Shavuot rehearsal late Wednesday night comprising people from their 40s to 70s. The half-hour gathering took place at the kibbutz's outdoor basketball court. That's where the Shavuot gatherings were held until they outgrew the site in recent years and moved to the field. Ginnagar has seen communal celebrations come and go. Jerusalem Day events petered out, and Gershon expects commemoration of Yitzhak Rabin's assassination to soon cease too. Even Passover gatherings fell by the wayside, but they've come back with this year's Seder drawing 300 people. Shavuot celebrations aren't going anywhere, Ike believes. A retired accountant, he was born on Ginnigar and has lived only here, but his three sons and eight grandchildren reside elsewhere. All would drive to the kibbutz for the holiday. Ike, 75, expects his younger sons to do what they always do, playfully push their eldest brother, Ido, 49, to return home to live. They want him to replace us when our souls return to the Creator so as to preserve their connection to the kibbutz so they can continue to visit, Ike said. He considers a question about whether Ido is likely to comply. I won't be here to certify it, Ike said, but I think so. Next from JTA, in a first Israeli government to pay Orthodox women to advise on Jewish law by Ron Campeas. In a first, Israel will pay 21 women to be advisors on Jewish law in the Orthodox community, a concept that has spread in the United States but that Israel's Orthodox establishment has resisted. Matan Kahana, the religious deputy services minister, said in a release Thursday he will hire the women for communities across Israel this year. Women advisors on halakha or Jewish law have flourished in recent years in the United States where there has been a demand among women for counseling on issues considered too sensitive to bring a male rabbi. The rabbinic establishment in Israel has resisted the concept, saying that certification may be seen as a form of ordination, which is prohibited for women across almost all of orthodoxy. Polling in Israel has nonetheless shown that there is a demand for the service among Orthodox women, and the institute founded by Rabbi Yehuda Herzl Henkin, who died last year, and his wife Hannah to train and certify Yoatzot Halacha is based in Jerusalem. Kahana has become known for its, uh, his efforts to accommodate non-Orthodox and more liberal Orthodox Jewish practices and has come under fire from extremists for doing so. Next from JTA, a California hate crimes bill separates Nazi symbols from Hindu swastikas by Maya Mirsky, and this was originally published by Jay, the Jewish News of Northern California. In what could be a first for an official piece of U.S. hate crimes legislation, California's state assembly has added language to a bill differentiating the Nazi swastika from the swastika symbol that has religious meaning for Hindu, Buddhist, and Jain communities. Rebecca Bauer-Kahan, Democratic California Assembly member representing part of the Bay Area and a member of the California Legislative Jewish Caucus worked with the Hindu American Foundation to add new language to a hate crimes bill she introduced with fellow state assembly member Mark Levine earlier this year. The new language added to the bill in May reads, it is the intent of this legislature 
to criminalize the placement or display of the Nazi Hakenkreuz uh, hooked cross, also known as the Nazi swastika, that was the official emblem of the Nazi party for the purpose of terrorizing a person. This legislation is not intended to criminalize the placement or display of the ancient swastika symbols that are associated with Hinduism, Buddhism, and Jainism and are symbols of peace. The bill, which was sent to the Senate after unanimously passing the Assembly last week, is res uh, expected to reach Governor Ga Gavin Newsom's desk by the end of the summer. It aims to change hate crime laws by standardizing the punishment for using various terror symbols such as nooses and burning crosses and swastikas. It would also expand the list of places where the law is applied to include public parks, school campuses, places of worship, and cemeteries, among others. Anti-Semitic groups such as the Goyim Defense League have distributed flyers with Nazi symbols and other hateful messages in California and other states in recent months. The Nazi symbol, which most people picture when they think of a swastika, is actually called the Hakenkreuz. Adolf Hitler appropriated the image for his Aryan cause, flipping the direction of its lines and rotating it. This has been a misnomer that's very entrenched, and it's going to take a while to get past that, said Samir Kalra, the Foundation's managing editor. His group wants people to stop using the word swastika altogether when referencing Nazis, though he acknowledges that for Jews there are decades of trauma connected to the symbol. I am pleased that we were able to create airtight language that is sensitive to these important cultures, while at the same time ensuring that those who seek to terrorize in any way will be held responsible and prosecuted, Bauer Kahan told Jay in an email. In a traditional Hindu, Buddhist, and Jain religions, in traditional Hindu, Buddhist, and Jain religions, the swastika has been regarded as a symbol of peace for thousands of years, Bauer Kahan said. Unfortunately, we know all too well that Hitler and the Nazi regime stole the symbol and used it as a banner of hate, murder, and destruction, and subsequently by Nazi supporters who seek to terrorize our community. Because hate crimes require the state to show that the accused person had the intent to terrorize, taking the Hindu swastika off the list won't materially affect any future hate crime prosecution. Still, the change in wording is a big deal, said Kalra. California is, as far as he knows, the first state to use clarifying language like this in legislation that affects criminal prosecution, although other states have made the same point in other contexts. This is a situation where we're actually trying to, to correct the penal code, Kalra said. Earlier in May, the foundation wrote to Bauer Kahan in support of the bill while suggesting the language be amended. Just displaying a swastika of any kind without the intent to intimidate or terrorize is not in itself prosecutable. But there have been numerous occasions in which Hindus, Buddhists, or Jains have faced negative consequences when displaying a swastika, according to Kalra. During the holiday of Diwali, people make patterns using colored powder that often include swastikas. Some people hang swastikas at their front door for luck. Hindu residents in certain communities have to prove this is a peaceful symbol, Kalra said. He believes this can have a chilling effect on religious freedom. 
Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I thank you very much for listening.